What's up, everybody? Welcome to Bomb City Locker Room Talk. You're listening to Locker Room Hype. As always, I'm James Fairchild. All right, this evening I have a pleasure of interviewing a good friend of mine and a well-known professional football player, Ziggy Hood. How you doing, Ziggy? I'm doing good. How about yourself? Doing fantastic. Trying to stay safe, trying to keep my family safe, trying to stay cool, too. It's been super hot down here in Texas. How's the weather up there? Well, it's just now breaking the 80s this week coming up. We've been having uh, bad weather as far as like rain on and off. But and then surprisingly, we got down to the low 30 to the low 30s. Wow. I think last weekend. I mean, that was surprising. I'm just glad we didn't get snow or anything like that. Well, you know how weather is here in Amarillo is bipolar. So we could get some Definitely. snow next week. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> never know. Snow one, snow one day, hurricane the next day. Right. Well, I want to start off by saying, man, you're one of the, you're undoubtedly a Texas Panhandle legend. Your accomplishments on and off the field are well documented and highly regarded, especially to us Amarilloans. You made such a positive impact in our community, our youth, and our sports. Even witnessing your work ethic in person in high school and going against you on scout team in practice my sophomore and junior years pushed me to become the best I could be. You really led by example and made a great person to look up to, man. I appreciate you taking the time to do this interview. No problem. I'm just glad to be on here. I'm glad uh, I got something to do. Hopefully I can make it exciting for you. Right, brother. And I won't hold it against you for kicking my tail all those years on scout team either. <laughs> no, man, it was all in the works, man. Everybody had, had a part in it. I mean, that's why we were so successful at PD especially around that time, because everybody, you know, believed in one common goal and that was winning at the time. Right. Hopefully they can get back there. I really hope so. I hope so, too, man. It, it, but like I said, growing up now is different from when we was growing up, because the only social media that I can remember that we had was uh, uh, with the My, uh, MySpace. MySpace, right, MySpace. Yeah, but even then, it wasn't as popular as it is now. I mean, you know, this – this day and age with kids happening and, you know, trying to always trying to prove something to somebody or having or trying to get um, attention. That's it's a lot you know, going on for kids now these days. And, you know, and that's what we tend to lose out a lot because we don't, especially as you know, the youth as is growing up, they forget about the hard work and the grind and the journey. And exactly. when it comes to that. So I think that's what you know, they're missing right now as kids. So it's going to take a special group of um, young guys to make an impact to where they not let things like that affect them as much. I completely agree. And, you know, the future, hopefully the future is bright for our Dons. I, I really hope so. Oh, I'm the same way. I'm the same way. Going into our first question, you know, looking back on your high school days as a Don, you earned all district honors, your junior and senior seasons. As a senior, you were named 3-4-A Defensive Player of the Year after making 93 tackles including 13 sacks and scoring three defensive touchdowns. As a high school athlete, what motivated you at such a young age to put yourself further than anyone else? Well, I think it's just, you know, what could I do better the next game or, you know, trying to be the best that I could be. You know, we had, I mean, as you know, James, we had a lot more guys that were talented. We had Corey Ginger, Keenan Ogis, Dustin Bruns, uh, Jason Myers, um, let me see, Jamar Smith. We had a ton of guys that had – oh, and, and Corey Gingerett. We had a ton of guys that had way more talent. And, the, and But the thing is – but the thing what I focus on was 
me being the best that I could be for my teammates. Because if I feel like I didn't have a good game or something like that, I believe that I let y'all down and let the team down, let the school down. So my single motivation was trying to be the best I could be, whether that was in practice, in the games, or you know, trying to be one of the best students I could possibly be. But that, I think that was singly motivating me to go out there and give it, give them all every game. Right, and you're admired for that. I mean, you you had a machine that never stopped running in high school, and you led by example, which was valuable for us younger players underneath y'all. Y'all y'all set the stage for us definitely with the work ethic. Mm-hmm. You and I both had the opportunity to play for Steve Parr at Paladero. Mm-hmm. However, from your perspective, in what ways did Coach Parr prepare you to succeed as a young person and in life? You know what? He was one thing that uh, one thing that uh, a lot of um, adults now, including myself and you know this older generation, a lot of people tend to sh- you know sugarcoat stuff. They don't be direct and tell you what exactly what they need. And I really, I really don't like people. I really can't stand um, passive aggressiveness because it's if you're not telling me what I'm doing wrong, how am I supposed to know if you know I'm not doing something right? And how can I correct it? You can't expect a player or somebody or an employee to do something. You want them to you know you want them to do it right, but you don't tell them. You say you saying they doing a good job but behind closed doors or of uh, your fellow co-workers or even you know the you know the, the big wigs upstairs you tell them a different story i think what coach Parr and that whole coaching staff did was they really kept it 100 with us if we wasn't doing good whether that was me or somebody else they i i got yelled at i got cussed at Whenever I didn't do a play right, mm. I didn't take it, I didn't take it as a negative thing. I took it as a positive thing to, you know, focus on okay, they're trying to correct me, but do it correctly in order for them to for, for me to be successful. Right, I, they really paid a lot of attention to detail within every one of us. That's what I always took away from the the attention that they you know instilled as coaches. They really put that fire and lit that fire on a daily basis and held us accountable mm-hmm. and pushed us to meet high expectations. Mm-hmm. Playing in a power five conference at the division one level is impressive and is a top collegiate competitive level. What was the transition like from high school to the division one level and what should athletes expect when making that transition? Oh, well, well, speaking from my perspective, you know, going from, Amarillo, Texas to Missouri, it wasn't too much big of a change because, you know, you know, Texas alone, it's its own country. It's its own continent. Right. It's own it's its own country, pretty much. But when you go to different places, whether that's Missouri, California and um, or New York or something like or whatever other state you go to, it's a different vibe. But for me, uh, Missouri was you know, more of a uh, I want to say country country college because I fit, you know, I fed in pretty well because there were farmers, there were people that, you know, lived out on open range type of stuff. What we, you know, what we're used to in Amarillo, but it was a, it was a different environment, different culture. And, you know, it was a great learning experience because I brought a different vibe from Amarillo, Texas, and that, you know, helped people around meeting guys like Chase Daniels, you know, from uh, South Lake, uh, William Moore, he's, you know, from the actual Missouri itself, Jeremy Macklin, Chase Kaufman, mm-hmm. uh, 
let me see, uh, uh, Brock Christopher, Sean, Sean Weatherspoon, uh, Tommy Chavis, uh, Striker Sulak. I mean, but we had a whole bunch of Texas guys to where I could fit in. But also there was other guys from different, you know, um, states and different backgrounds that I learned from as well. And but just having that experience and taking it over there, it was you know, it was wonderful to do. I wouldn't I wouldn't change it for the world. And you know, for you have to be ready for the changes that come with it because not only that I'm in a different state, I'm on my own. So I have to, you know, present myself and, you know, understand I represent not only myself, I represent my family and my school. And, uh, you know, whatever you want to represent yourself and that you want to be able to walk around with a badge of honor, you have to take that account when you go to these places. Right. I bet you felt pretty at home going from Missouri from the panhandle since you said it was really comparable in the type of landscape, the culture, the atmosphere. Did you feel real at home when you stepped foot on campus? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like no major city, like, you know, like a, like a, like a St. Louis or Kansas City, which were, you know, the biggest cities, you know, there in the state of Missouri. But, you know, it was a small college town and, you know, you, you had your college dorm parties and stuff like that. That really wasn't different from Amarillo, but you know, it was more of a home field environment because it, it was a lot bigger than what you expected, but it wasn't too out the ordinary that you got lost in the shuffle. Right. And, and you were recruited substantially and eventually did commit to University of Missouri. And based on your experience when you were recruited out of the Texas Panhandle, what would your advice be to a young high school athlete who was going through the recruiting process? Man, for a lot of guys that came in my freshman year, some of us didn't make it past that first summer, let alone that first semester. You know, a lot of guys lost focus. A lot of guys... If you know, if you came down here for academics, if you came down here for you know on a scholarship for sports and stuff like that, you have to you know keep in mind that you're down here and you're down here for a purpose. A lot of guys got down there and just went went wild. They lost focus. They you know they try to live the party life. The uh, I'm on my own life, so I can right. do whatever I want. But didn't realize there was no um, consequences to whatever that you did wrong. And a lot of guys pay dearly. I'm not going to name any names, but, I, uh, you know, a lot of guys didn't make it past freshman year, especially that summer, because a lot of things happened. And they came from, you know, highly recommended from different schools, Dallas, Houston. A lot of people came from um, California, but they was also recruiting around all over places and stuff. And these are like four-star, five-star guys coming in. But some of them didn't see, you know, the end of fall semester because they either get into trouble or – when things got too hard, they quit and went a different direction. I mean, it, it just it just boggled my mind when guys get to school and they lose focus mm-hmm. and their dreams, you know, they don't do whatever they can to turn their dreams into reality. And when their reality, uh, you know, turns into nightmares because of what they portray and what they did wrong, you know, it's, it's hard to see that from guys. But the one thing I want to tell a young guy, especially coming out, if you're going to college, stay focused. I know you're going to get distracted with you know a lot of with a new environment, but you have to stay focused. But if you don't stay focused, you're going to get lost. You're just going to get swallowed up in the system. Right. And you were so successful because you were focused. I mean, you had a tremendously successful college career at Missouri under Gary Pinkle. In 2007, you played on arguably one of the best Missouri football teams of all time. 
being ranked as high as number one in the nation entering December of that year, concluding with the victory over Arkansas in the Cotton Bowl. What would you say was your most memorable moment playing for the University of Missouri? Oh, man. I want to say it was either my first sack against Baylor my freshman year or the last sack I I had against uh, Northwestern in the Alamo Bowl my senior year. Um, Either one can't compare because it was the beginning of one and then it was the end of the other. So, I mean, I want to say – I want to say that, you know, the sack against Northwestern, especially that game at Alamo Bowl, because I'm a senior and, you know, we're going out on the bay, especially mm-hmm. with the draft coming up and the combine and all that, and, you know, their future and stuff like that. But going out there, going to battle with those guys again and just, you know, having an opportunity to talk with some guys years later, you know, years later about that, you know, um, particular game, it's just, it's meaningful because you can relive almost every play and, you know, who, you know, who had a loaf on this or who had who missed the tackle. Just having that, you know, memory and having that good fun talk about it, you know, it just really it makes you feel good that you felt like you got something accomplished. Right. You had some memorable moments too as a as a collegiate athlete, sacking Colt McCoy, yeah. having the battles with Oklahoma. I mean, your career mm-hmm. was was very highly regarded and, and very successful. And mm-hmm. you know, throughout your college career, I have to ask, which stadium did you most enjoy playing in as a visitor? Man, I want to say the first, I want to say uh, Texas A&M, College Station, because especially when they celebrated or uh, or made a great, I think, you know, when they had, you know, score a touchdown or celebrated, and the fans, they, you know, they uh, get to sway on, in. Yeah. They hit the sway. Mm-hmm. I, I, I swear to you, the whole stadium is moving. I mean, it was just, it, it was crazy. I mean, like, oh my goodness. I don't know how many, um, Fans fit there. I mean, you may know this, but the over ninety. Yeah, I think it's around a hundred thousand. Yeah, I had a buddy. My friend Joseph went to Texas A and M LSU game two seasons uh-huh. ago. That seven overtime game, and he was just telling me the stories of how many just human beings are just packed in one you know stadium. It's yeah. unreal how their fans are so rabid and fanatic that they can fill a stadium that's so so large. So yeah, I mean, it, it, that's a great that's a great college town, especially you know for sports and uh, just having the having that. I, I I think we end up losing anyways, but having that experience to see something like that that's what makes you know college um, sports so you know valuable because it's the it's just a raw emotion and the energy and it's, you know it's electrifying just to be around that atmosphere so you you know you can feel that. It, you know, it generates energy and creates its own energy by its own. Right. How did you feel when Missouri went to the SEC? I thought it was new. I thought, you know, it's going to be, you know, exciting. You know, SEC is probably the deep, you know, top powerhouse when it comes to, you know, the sports and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I felt like we were going to get a lot of things, you know, accomplished. And, you know, with you know, Coach Finkel at, you know, at, in charge and stuff, you know, it's you know, I felt real confident. You know, when he ended up leaving the things going you know, bad with that and stuff like that, I still got confidence on my guys that they'd be well and you know, they're gonna uh, they're gonna have a point when they turn that program around, get back to where they need to be and you know, ultimately you know, be one you know, one of the top, you know, contenders in that uh, division or conference. Right. And since the draft is like fresh in our minds, I want to ask you this. When you were drafted in the first round in 2009 to the Pittsburgh Steelers, it was a huge deal for you, Amarillo, 
our alma mater, Paladuro. Mm-hmm. And what was draft day like for you 11 years ago, looking back on that moment? You know, it was nerve wracking, you know, nerve wracking, exciting. Um, one of the greatest experiences I, you know, I have in my life, you know, being that, you know, second, third and under, you know, from being married and, you know, having, having two boys of my own, just having that opportunity to get drafted. It's an exciting moment, not only for you, but for your family and your friends that, you know, they saw the growth, they saw the process going on and how things, you know, played out. And just to share their experience with, you know, everybody was there at the time, but not only that, represent, you know, there are people that will come from small places, you know, Amarillo being a you know, small place in a lot of people's minds that if you look hard enough and you take one person or two that can generate enough the ability on their own to do something special, they will, you know, accomplish something. And I think not only when I got drafted, the whole city got drafted and you know, right. it was able to accomplish a lot. It was very exciting. I'm sure your dad was elated. Oh, he was he was fired up. You know, it was a proud moment of his because he was always been, uh, you know, right there by my side. Pretty much, you know, he was my road dog. Pretty much, but every game that Missouri was having, whether it was home or away, he was there. So you know that goes to show that you know he did a lot, uh, you know, for me. Not only that, a lot for my you know younger sister as well. So he did everything he probably could try to be the best dad. And not only that, one of my biggest supporters along with my journey. Right. And he was really loyal to us, too. After you graduated, he still came to most of our mm-hmm. practices, all of our games. He was he yeah. was an inspirational figure for me. Uh, you know, just his, his will to, to be there for us and to support us was huge. He, he still goes by practice and still watch, you know, watches. I call him up on, you know, probably almost every, every Wednesday. Thursday just to check on, you know, how, how PD doing, how the kids, what's going yeah. on, who's in the room, and, you know, we have an you know, hour, hour and a half talk, just talking strictly, you know, power girl. Good, good, bad, or ugly. You know, we had those conversations about, you know, about the high school, because it's, you know, it's one of my passions. I love just to hear what the kids are doing, right. or something I may implement to him, maybe he can share, you know, pass down with the coaches, or something like that. Right, I'm sure he's still super proud of you guys. Oh yeah, he is, man. He's you know fired up. He's there's never a dull moment with him, especially when it comes to, you know just talking about PD by itself. Oh yeah, he's a diehard, lifelong PD fan for sure. <laughs> oh yeah, you gotta see you gotta see his uh, outfits. Half of them are blue or white. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. Did did he spend a lot of money getting those Missouri colors once he went to man, college? Whatever team I played on, he he, he goes all out in. You know, depending if I'm there for one season or five seasons, he goes all in for whatever team I'm on. Hey, that's a testament to a great father right there. That's awesome. Tell me about it. You've had a long NFL career. You had the opportunity to be coached by Mike Tomlin, Dick LeBeau early in your career. What attributes as coaches made them impactful mentors and influential leaders? Their determination, their, you know, the singular focus to win and want to win right. You know, you got to come in to work knowing that in order for you to be successful, in order for, you know, this organization to move on, you have to bring your A game. There's, there come times when you, you know, there comes times when, you know, you can play, kid around, joke with the guys. But when it comes time to work, you got to work by far. And that's one thing that I like about, you know, the Rooney family, you know, the whole entire Rooney family, you know, 
they it's a great environment, especially with the Pittsburgh Steelers that have, you know, shared that experience, you know, my time there that because that family was so well built and so well organized to where that everybody I, I haven't talked to anybody that had a bad experience, you know, playing for the Pittsburgh Steelers. You know, I, I have nothing but good memories, you know, outside of, you know, losing games and stuff like that. But I have nothing but enjoyable, good memories of being there and being able to have the experience because that city with that, with the Steeler Nation behind them, I, it's hard to find any other fan base that, you know, will gravitate and stand behind that team, win or loss, because that – the organization is just so powerful on its own and what they bring. And you know when the Renegade song comes on, it's like you playing against giants, you're playing against, you know, the gods out there on the football field because it's just it's so electrifying just to be part of that. And that all started from the chain of command with the Roney family, worked down with the coaching staff with Coach Tomlin and the older players fed from that. And all of that, you know, it got engraved into me as a young player you know, to carry that legacy on all throughout the years that I played. Right. It always seemed from a from afar that organization is very family oriented and, and very mm-hmm. tight knit and close. Yes. Yeah. Very. And you know, you're in a rare elite class of individuals who can legitimately say they played in a Super Bowl and had the opportunity in your career to play with household names like Ben Roethlisberger, Troy Palomalu, James Harrison, Heinz Ward, and many others. What yes. lessons did you learn as a young professional player from playing with teammates who are bona fide future Hall of Famers? Man, just the, what, how they, how they, you know, uh, conducted themselves on the field the same way they conducted off the field. You know, um, they carried themselves with pride. Not only that, they, you know, made sure they did their work but also became, you know, family men afterwards. And a lot of people, you know, don't talk about the other side of football. I was I was fortunate enough to be behind one of the great, you know, greatest players in my mind at the time was Aaron Smith. They brought me in to replace Aaron Smith. And when you bring in a first rounder and the guy you come in and replace, some of them don't, you know, uh, you know, what will take you under their wing when first getting in. Because, you know, as an older guy, you got this young guy coming in. He's coming in for my job. So mm-hmm. let me stare away from him. Let me make sure I mess him up just a little bit so I keep my job, you know, for as long as I can. No, Aaron Smith, he took me under his wing. He showed me how to be a professional player and all of that. The qualities and everything I've learned as far as helped me become a better man from there, I pretty much learned from him because this man – not only that, he battled with football, he, he battled with other problems. His son, Elijah, had, you know, a form of, uh, of cancer that he was dealing with. So as a man and as, you know, as a, as a father, that's hard to deal with at the same time, play football and keep, right. you, you know, you know, keep a certain energy about you. So because in the back of your mind, you're so worried about your son. But only that, you got to go to work the next day. So, you know, I come in, I take my hat off to him because that's not an easy thing to be part of because you know just having trying to be a family man and deal with football man it's already a tough enough job as it is right and you know you played defensive end and you Mm -hmm. played nose tackle Mm -hmm. what about playing defensive end made that position so much more enjoyable for you Man, I, I I just think I was more better suited on like towards the outside because my speed a lot different. 
you know, I, you know, me being six three, I can pack on some weight, but I, I don't, I, I just don't feel right being, you know, three three oh five plus, you know, three oh five three ten and stuff like that. I, I feel good at two ninety five, two ninety, you know, because I'm I'm strong enough, but quick enough, so I'm able to do my job and job, you know, effectively, and just that I'm I'm able to recover and bounce back a whole, you know, a whole lot faster being at a certain weight than if, if I'm above what I, you know, what they want me to be, you know, at and stuff. So I feel I'm more better on the outside, even at three technique, I feel well. But the man you put me at nose, you want me to be at three, t- uh, 310, 315, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> right. I, like I said, I, I do what I can, whatever, you know, whatever team or the organization asks of me to do, I try to do the best of my ability. My, my ability. Right. And I remember the, the skill set that you had even in high school, you you had had it down at defensive end and I could just yeah. see you excelling, you know, at the next level at defensive end. And then when you got to the NFL and a little bit in college, you played nose tackle. And it was interesting because I could see you make that that transition. And it didn't seem like it was a tough transition for you. No, it's just I mean, what if you want to play and, the, you know, you have the you know the chance and the ability to play. You may not you may not fully agree with it one hundred percent, but if it's the better to help the team, you have to put ego, you have to put, you know, the, and pride aside and say, Okay, what do I have to do to uh play this position? And so how can I prepare myself and better myself in order to be the best out there? And not only that, make this team better. Right. Being a team player, that's that's very yeah. very vital for the team's success. And you've yes. proven that. And in your opinion, man, with everything going on right now, do you feel like there will be an NFL season? Man, I believe that I think the NFL will be somewhat safe because they had they have time to think about it. They got they and not only that, the season don't start till, you know, really, you know, September. Mm-hmm. So they have time to prepare, I mean to prepare um See what plan works. See what's happening over here. Because when it happened, you it's in the middle of you know uh, of the basketball season. You know, heading towards the playoffs. So they were caught off guard with right. everything was going. They were sort of the uh, guinea pig to all this, pretty know. much. And you know, baseball couldn't start on time. And you know, hockey was you know you know infect you know affected you know majorly because all of a sudden it got thrown into what's happening. I I, I believe that there will be football. Will it start maybe possibly a little later? Yes, I believe football will you know, will happen. But in order for that to happen, I think some something's going to have to change. And from what I'm hearing, from what I'm you know, and what I'm you know reading up on is that it may be played with no fans at the time, or everybody's going to be spaced out. I understand guys want to play. I, I trust me. I I, mm-hmm. I, I understand. But you have to you have to be safe to do it because all it takes is one guy to spread it to, you know, possibly over 50, 60 some guys, you know, and football is, you know, requires a lot more than, say, basketball, hockey or stuff like that, because there's 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 less amount of guys compared to those other sports to football. Mm -hmm. So when you got over, you know, 50, 60 some guys, all it takes is one guy on the plane ride back from a game or something like that, you'll you know, it's. You know, you can spread it too easily. And all that, you can spread it to the next team. Right. So now, all of a sudden, got, everybody got a quarantine or isolate themselves for 14 days. Right. 
it's, it's going to be interesting moving forward to see what happens. But yeah. I do think that it's going to be pushed back, if anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of transitioning into the youth. What would be your most significant piece of advice for a young person who is struggling to overcome unspoken obstacles? Ask questions, and but also seek people that are wiser and smarter than you and ask the right questions. And, and not only that, hear what they have to say. You know, learn from other people's, uh, you know, mistakes and examples. And but not only that, take bits and pieces of what they do well. Try to implement it, you know, implement for yourself. If it doesn't work for you, try something else. Just don't be content to where you are right now. Always achieve and want to be more, whether that's sports or if you're trying to get a, you know, you're trying to be the best burger flipper. Uh, you know, like I was working for Sonic at the time. Always try to achieve more and want more at the time. But you cannot want it if you don't, you know, let me rephrase that. If you want something so bad, you'll work for it. Wanting, wanting it is, is not enough. You have to work for it in order for it to become true. Right. I couldn't agree with you more. That's great advice. You know, I've been a special education teacher for the past seven years. Any any time we as educators can raise awareness for students with special needs, it's always a positive, necessary endeavor. You've been an influential presence for raising autism awareness. What are some impactful ways we can further raise awareness in our own local community? For one, uh, we have to, you know, accept it for what it is. You know, a lot of people like myself, I was in denial for the first uh, three or four years of my oldest Josiah uh, uh, having autism, and it took it, it, it took a lot of talking. It took a lot of you know therapy and a lot of you know just you know praying about it. Mm-hmm. And then finally, when you know I accepted it for what it was, how can I make this better? Because not only not only that I'm hurting myself, I'm hurting them as well. Because when you, when you have kids, you picture. You picture the good, you picture the the, the, the best, and you want you want everything to go perfect. But you know, life doesn't have you know happen perfectly. So when I had all these visions and all these dreams, all these you know things that I wanted for him to be and want him to do, I'm I'm not gonna say it got erased. It just got delayed and pushed back. So now it's my responsibility to put him in the best possible situation for him to be the best in life. Because if something doesn't go the way I want it to go, I want to make sure that when I leave this earth, I want him to be taken care of for the rest of his life. So it was my goal to make sure that I'm um, organizing and positioning myself in life to make sure that not only him, his brother will be taken care of by our entire family at the same time. And for people, let just it's okay to talk about it. It's okay, it's okay right. to voice. It's, it's okay to cry. It's okay to you know let people know, hey, this is this is hurting me and uh, I'm having to, you know, I'm having to I'm having to deal with something. Can you please, you know, help me? It's okay to ask for help and seek help because somebody will answer you eventually. Right. You know, and to add to that, you know, it's it's very important for us to not forget about the struggles that are that go unspoken with kiddos that do have special needs. It's it's vital for us to to be the loving support system that they most desperately deserve in life. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yes, Going on to our next question, what makes the Panhandle so special to you? 
man, because that's that's all I knew for the first 18 years. That became that that was my home. That was my start. That was my stomping grounds. That was that what made me me today is growing up there. The good, the bad, the ugly, the you know, different experiences, the just the people around, just living in living that region. You know that that I mean I, I can't describe it any other way. It just that it, it, it formed me, it molded me, it it helped me, it guided me to where I am now today. Like when I talk to people, I call it Little A Town. You got A Town in Atlanta, but you got Little A Town in Amarillo. Exactly. And, and, and every chance I get, with, especially if I'm in an argument for guys representing Dallas or representing Houston or something like that, I'm bringing up Amarillo regardless, whether they know where it's <laughs> And they don't know where Amarillo is most of the time. Nope. Nope. <laughs> for the most part. I tell them if you know what Love is, you know what Texas Tech is, it's two hours up north from there. That's, that's a good way to put it. Time. Yeah. That's that's perfect. <laughs> well, what do you miss most about Amarillo? Oh man, Waterburger, Wiener Snitzel, uh <laughs> Dairy Queen, all the good, you know, stuff that can get you over three hundred real quick. Oh yeah. And just and not only that, just going back and just hanging out in the front yard, you know, just clean air, open environment. You got blue skies every day unless you're in the middle of a you know, thunderstorm coming in. It's just that I, you couldn't ask for a better environment to be in. And just and having that the atmosphere around because it's just it's just a common common situation happening there. Right. You know, we get a bad rap from a lot of people from the outsiders looking in and sometimes yeah. from our own Amarilloans, but I feel like it's a great city to raise your family, a great place to be. You know, not too big, not too small. Yeah. I mean, you got you got everything. You you really got everything you need there. And just having, like I said, I, I'm, we, we're from a simpler time. And just when you have enough, you have plenty. And, and that's, why, that's why I feel like. Uh, now, my wife is on a different, you know, she's on a different vibe. You know, she's from right. Seattle, so she's used to the big totally city. Totally different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could make that work, but you know, she understands because she's been there a couple of times back with me. Well good. Man, I gotta ask, have you become a Sog Poodles fan? Sog Sog's Poodle? Yeah, the, the Amarillo Sod Poodles, our minor league baseball team. You you haven't Man, heard of them yet? You know what? Is that the new stadium that was built? Yes, sir. There? That's the new one is downtown. Last year my, was the I first came season. In for my birthday. I came in for my birthday uh, the following February, I mean, this past February, and I'm driving downtown. I see just a, a stadium. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. what happened to the Civic Center? I know it's still there now, but they're making a whole new era. I said, okay, what is that? <laughs> and I'm, matter of fact, I was, who was I riding with? Uh, uh, Christopher Martinez, good, good, buddy, good mm-hmm. buddy of mine. Yeah, I know Chris. Yeah, yeah Chris. And so... He was explaining to me new baseball team, uh, Civic Center got flooded and all that. I'm like, man, what? I don't know what's going on. I, is the Amarillo Venom, uh, are they still good? The are Venom still is still around. Yes, Venom okay. still around. And, you know, right next door to the Civic Center is where the Sod Poodle Stadium in it is. And it was a huge controversy whether or not they were going to be named the Sod Poodles or they were going to be named something else. So it was a big uproar at first because the name was so out of left field and wacky, but you know a lot of minor league minor league teams they have wacky weird names. So 
we kind of adopted the name and I think everybody's embraced it pretty well now. Yeah. You know what? When my little, my little bout, my little short time in new Orleans, I forgot what the, uh, baby case. Yeah. Mm-hmm. New Orleans baby case. There was a, uh, uh, I guess a, a minor, a minor league team. And I'm like the baby case. I said, oh. <laughs> well, I want to get the shirt. I, you know, it's, yeah. it's funny. Like you said, the name just kept you off guard. I'm like, well, I guess I mean, it works. It works for a lot of people. Well, I'm gonna have to send you a sod poodles hat or a shirt hey, or man, something. I, man. I, I definitely will rock it. I definitely will rock. It. Well, Ziggy, man, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me and to do this interview. It's been an absolute mm-hmm. pleasure, man. No problem, man. I'm glad for having me, James. Yeah, thank you so much, man. We're thrilled to have you. And as always, this is James Fairchild. Thank you guys for tuning in to Bomb City Locker Room Talk and listening to Locker Room Hype.